greed. Go looking for the rot at the heart of any city, and you're sure to find it somewhere. It drives men to commit terrible, unthinkable acts, all in the name of the almighty dollar. Greed is an engine fueling legions of gangsters, crooked cops, two-bit criminals, and scheming charlatans. Greed, more often than not, is the force against which our noir anti-heroes find themselves up against. In the case of tonight's pair of films, both centered on an armored car robbery, you better believe that these big scores are driven by raw, unadulterated avarice. And yet, there are six other deadly sins, and when it comes to film noir, you can count on some array of these creeping into the margins. In the case of this evening, one even works its way into the title. That means that, yes, we'll be looking at Jason Statham as the very picture of wrath, and Burt Lancaster as an unstable cocktail of envy, lust, and pride. Both square off with the blinding hubris and unquenchable greed required to pull off an armored car heist. There are no saints tonight, only sinners, on this particularly dark installment of Celluloid Dirt. Yeah, well, like a man told me once, step out your door in the morning, you're already in trouble. Just a matter of whether you mixed up at the top of that trouble or not, that's all. I don't know if you're a detective or a pervert. I'd like to say that if you're seeing me, you're having the worst day of your life. If my answers frighten you, Vincent, then you should cease asking scary questions. I haven't lived a good life. I've been bad. Worse than you could know. I'd hate to take a bite out of you. You're a cookie full of arsenic. There's his story against mine, but of course I told my story better. Hello, and welcome to Celluloid Dirt, where two friends get together to watch new and familiar noir films and then talk about them. I'm one of those friends, Fred Pelzer, joined by my friend, Tristan Johnson. And tonight, we're shifting into heist mode as we look at two films revolving around armored car robbery, 1949's Crisscross and 2021's Wrath of Man. As noted in the intro, these are especially bleak entries in the genre, both very much in their own way, with two different wattages of star power at their center. We'll be starting back in the classic noir era with Robert Siedmack's Crisscross. They're killers, killers. I can't even sleep. Look the way he treats me. He saw the danger signs, but he wouldn't heed them. For him, there was no way out. He couldn't drop her. She was in his mind, in his blood. And if loving her meant tangling with a killer, he was ready for that too. Chris Cross was released in 1949. It's directed by Robert Siedmack and stars Burt Lancaster, Yvonne DiCarlo, and Dan Duria. So, Burt Lancaster stars as, uh, as, as Steve, who returns to Los Angeles, taking up his old job as an armored car driver, and he waltzes back into the life of his ex-wife. They strike things up again, but she elopes with the uh, mobster Slim Dundee, played by uh, Dan Duria. And, uh, and Steve sees an opportunity here, and he pitches to Slim an armored car heist with him as the inside man. Uh, but as the uh, heist transpires, he double-crosses Slim, is gravely injured, and wakes up as a hero in the hospital. Uh, it's, of course, not quite over yet, as Slim sends a man to deliver Steve right to him, who Steve then bribes off, uh, has him taken to his wife, who, um, uh, who, who of course, uh, we, we get this, uh, this climactic scene where Slim confronts them, and it ends uh, quite tragically, as, uh, as, both, as both Steve and his wife are gunned down. Uh, so this is a, a, a pretty dark <laughs> arc of a noir film, even by the standards by which we've already set. It gets in there. And it was interesting. So I've watched this before, but I think this was your first time watching, right? It was. So watching it the second time, I was better able to key in on the tragedy of Lancaster's character because everybody tells him, don't do this, you're being an idiot. And then he just does it anyway. Some guys, they can't, they just they think with one thing and one thing only, I guess. Uh, no kidding. I think that, uh, I think that's a really good call because this this would be bound to play different if you knew just the the unsparing ending that it's that it's marching toward. 
uh, because you you never know. We've seen our fair share of noirs that let let them off the hook. That uh, that you know, things might get dark, but the the, the hero is ultimately going to prevail. But the here's the the thing the thing with Steve is he's not um, he's not that smart of a guy, but he's not that great of a guy. True. Uh, he he's kind of an asshole. Uh, he's an asshole to to his um, ex wife. He's uh, he's. Uh, he's likable, but that's just because he's played by Burt Lancaster, right? Right, but this is also his wheelhouse. And also, uh, I think we've talked about this before, but uh, all accounts, Burt Lancaster, not a great human being. So kind of right right up his alley. But uh, yeah, I, I think this is like the epitome of the Burt Lancaster character, which is beautiful, but broken inside. And that's that's Steve. Yeah, uh, and and he he fits so well in with the the, the classic noir heroes. Um, we have uh, for for those listening in, uh, we've been moving around, doing um, viewing things a little out of order here because we're well into our forthcoming season. So we've been um, on the private eye. Very um, on the private eye. We've been very laser focused on on detectives and we're kind of jumping back here. So, uh, so this has been a, a little bit of a welcome break, uh, just to, to get a different pace to not have to worry about, about private eyes in the mix, uh, and instead get down to some really damaged, uh, human beings. And, uh, so this is my first viewing your, your second Fred. Mm-hmm. Have you seen any, any other side max? films have you seen the killers i've not seen the kills i'm looking forward to it and this has become one of those titles where i'm like well we're doing this podcast so i'm just gonna wait to watch it for the, whenever we get to it which I, might be under our if, if when we get to a heist season or it might be if and under when we get to a hired killers season that is a couple different spots it could fall i i can't remember if i've seen the killers or not but if i have it was like way way back in my my like at least post-college years and and it's not it's not really registering with me, but I was I was watching a lot of noir back then, so I mm. might have seen it. But I I think I I think I would have remembered uh, a a Burt Lancaster one in the mix. I mean, cause that's, uh, he's that's also his, the star his, of the Killers. His first, right? That's like his, that his is, big breakout. I that I think that is his his big breakout movie. Yeah, he's a boxer. Um, right, and Burt Lancaster is such an interesting. I mean, again, I. Big fan. Uh, anything, anytime he turns up, I, I, I'm always a fan. Uh, from his early days in noir, straight through to local hero. And I love local hero. It's a great love movie. It. It's uh, it's just it's uh, not it's not noir, not noir no. in the slightest. <laughs> but but it is a really wonderful movie. Uh, he's yeah he's the leopard is is one of my mm. very favorites. Uh, but he's very good at con- the swimmer. Uh, yes, he's he's so good at conveying inner turmoil. Yes, uh, uh, sweet smell of success, which we will sweet cover at smell some point. Success, absolutely. And he's also just so big, like he's just so physically imposing and physical, and like, it, as is physical as a physical performer, right? I mean, he was a trained acrobat, I think, and oh, was dismissive oh. of acting because he thought like it wasn't a man's job. It was was all I was taking away from it, so he was instead of like this very physical performer and then he got injured and was like well i guess i'll go act then and then has this wonderful career as a very good actor and to me i i I find it hard to to see early marlon brando or early paul newman without without thinking that like oh burt lancaster was already like cutting out that kind of uh, that kind of raw masculine cool. Brando is tumultuous right up on the surface, and and Newman is unflappable. Uh, but but Lancaster has got it all boiling underneath. Yeah, again, he's just this like beautiful, captivating presence. But always, yeah, there's just that sense of there's something rotten under there, and it, which makes him an ideal fit for this kind of narrative right here did so many of these noirs in this era and brings such a very specific type to the screen that that the producers and directors and writers are very 
adept at keying in on and using for their their film. Yeah, it's um I I think that when we're looking at these these classic noirs, that's certainly not it's not a deal breaker, the star power angle, but it sure helps to have a very particular uh type of star that your your narrative is built around. Um and and we and we know what that looks like with Humphrey Bogart uh and uh and he's he's the the prototype of it all, but 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 really, there's just so many different um, so so many different ways to go when it comes to to leveraging the leading men of the day and and pushing them in different directions. It just needs. I feel like the the genre really benefits with someone with with a very particular presence at the at the forefront. This movie works largely because of of Burt Lancaster. We're talking about an armored armored car heist and the the heist itself isn't isn't pitched until quite a ways into the movie uh last 15 like, minutes 20 minutes yeah i don't think i don't think he even spells out the plan until um at least 50 minutes in yeah and so this was the thing that watching it a second time became clear to me is how much this movie is more interested in being a character drama i mean if you so one of the other things right about this is that it is a chronological, which is another big factor in classic noir and the, especially the neo-noir movement post Tarantino. It's something that we'll definitely be exploring again at some other point. And, you know, there's a lot of theory that goes into how the uh, atemporality of a lot of noir narratives plays into the sense of dread and foreboding and doom because the things that we are watching are already foretold. The, the ending is already foretold. And so there's no escaping fate for these characters. Um, much like the way that here Lancaster can escape the fate that his wife is, gonna, his ex-wife is going to betray him, that everybody keeps telling him is, is what's going to happen. But it also, in this very specific instance, I think acts as a kind of like a three-card shuffle where they go, all right, we're going to give you the juice at the start where there's this great opening scene of moving around this bar and these guys get into a fight. And then we think that that's real, but it's not real, but it actually was real because there's this other tension underneath, you know, there's, it's very exciting and propulsive. And then essentially we get to him being in the car driving as on the way to the, the heist. And he's like, I mean, it's essentially he looks at the camera and goes, I bet you're wondering how I got here. And then, do, 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 do. and then we just go back I don't know, whatever is six months or whatever, and then just let it play. And the intervening material between the start of the flashback and then the end when we get to the heist is devoid of criminality, right? It is much more about him reconnecting with his ex and being told again and again, don't do this, and then getting caught out. And then at the very end, he's like, when they get caught together, he's like, I have to come up with a story. So my story is I'm coming to you about a heist and then they do a heist. And, and it's, oh, it, it makes for, it makes for a really, um, a really odd pacing to the movie. And mm-hmm. I don't, um, I, I don't know that it fully pulls it off. This is the kind of thing, like, I'm glad you mentioned Tarantino because he, um, you can feel that he studied these kind of things and said, "How can I do this to maximum effect? How can I break away and 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 cut to a flashback and and spend uh, spend as long as I want there, but make sure that every every second I'm there counts." Right. Or uh, Guy Ritchie, as we'll soon discuss. Or Guy Ritchie, uh, because both of these both of these movies we're looking at tonight do dive into flashbacks uh, and. But even. And extended flashbacks extended flashbacks but even outside of that i mean richie made his career in that if i'm i mean it's been a long time since i've watched lock stock and two smoking barrel and snatched and, and his his early movies but those also really played into the like we're gonna stop go back show you something you didn't see that gives you new context for the thing that we're seeing and then we're gonna resume and be like oh now i know this other thing is happening too yeah and even even richie's early films doing that feel like like I mean, he has his own style, no doubt, but but the, it feels like it's pulling from the Tarantino. Agreed. Of, it of yeah, it doesn't feel or... as studied 
in terms right. of the larger cinematic history. Not to not not as a slight, just sort of you know. I mean, we've also talked about this before. Just the the post Tarantino boom of of Tommy Wami neo noirs that are just like, and then this other thing, and then these other three things were all happening at the same time, and then it all comes together, and oh my. Yeah, and and Tarantino pulls it off so well because he's watching movies like Crisscross and he's he's analyzing what works and what doesn't and uh and like that's that is his obsession that's how his, his brain works whereas other people are are looking at oh t- it works for Tarantino let me try to to do that and it and it takes it perhaps a step less effective than um than how he's deploying it I'm very curious for us to revisit at some point, I mean, we're, we're, we're planning these seasons out and it's like, these seasons are going to take a year at a time. So who knows when we're going to get some of these topics, but if and when we get to something that brings in lock, stock and smoking, two smoking barrels or snatch, I, I am very curious to revisit those because the last time I watched them was in college 15 years ago, at least. And, uh, I've never know, seen snatch, but it has been a, it's been a very long time since I've seen lock, stock. Tonight we've got we've got this pairing of armored car movies, which uh, which uh, of course it's a, it's something binding the two of them together. Uh, but I think as we're looking at these, we want to ask the the question of how does this how does this work within noir and mm-hmm. uh, and and you know is it uh, we're kind of already answering this with crisscross, but is it a heist movie? Is it uh, uh, is it a crime movie? Like where where does this kind of fall in? And uh, and really, what what I like about Crisscross is that it's it, it is a character study of of Burt Lancaster's downfall um, more than anything, and that's what makes it such a good entry into this genre for me. The character study hinges on the fact that his ride along partner gets killed. Like I think that is the moment that dooms Lancaster as a character because there is, you know, a certain degree of morality to the noir universe. Generally, even in the bleak entries, it's it, because we're often watching at the very, at the very least legally reprehensible, if not morally reprehensible characters, the consequences are earned, you know, they're very Greek tragedy in that, in that sense. And so, you know, Lancaster, is very likable, you know, so Steve's likable, but he does bring this all down on his head because he can't stop sleeping with his ex-wife. Like, yep. if he just didn't do that, he'd be fine. But he just is, like, drawn like a moth to the flame. He is, he has he has flaws that, um, that are much more pronounced from all of the other, the films that we haven't even gotten to yet, uh, that, that you will be hearing about in, in coming weeks. Um, he is one of if not the most flawed uh main character we've we've encountered so far i'm trying to think of who I mean, else Nightmare Alley is the other one right with stan right. yeah absolutely which also which again has been matched by a a bleak ending like the the ending matches the the flaw of the character you to your point about heists and crime and noir there's such an interesting thin line between those those heist movies that do and do not tip over into noir, right? Um, I mean, I think like Ocean's Eleven, both the original and the remake are prime examples of like, we're just going to have fun. And there's not that, you know, a a theme that we return to a lot. There's not that inner turmoil, turmoil to it. It's just... Man, it's cool watching people pull off a heist, right? Where, where it's pure power fantasy again, but it's all like intellectual power fantasy. This this movie is not crisscross is not uh, concerned with the mechanics of no. of team building of of um, executing a heist. Like it is there, and when they execute it, to me and probably to to most, the the highlight of this movie is the heist itself. Which yes, is, this is the reason to watch it. Which is the absolutely the reason to to tune into this um it is a nightmarishly uh surreal uh just blank canvas landscape many gas masks especially post-world war ii i mean even in a modern context it is just alarming so they use a a smoke bomb and fill this back alley with smoke so they can approach the the 
armored car and get the materials and get out. And, you know, it, it is a riveting set piece, 100%. But also, I think when you consider the release in 1949 and these men who, like the viewing audience who were just at war and, and even just it also like, like a war a, zone. Yeah. Right. It looks like a war zone, even just also a generation earlier with World War One and the, the start of chemical warfare and like the worst of that. I, th- I think it, it also kind of draws on that in a sort of apocalyptic fashion in a very effective fashion. Yeah. It's, um, it, it's really staged tremendously and, and, um, Said Mac is, uh, uh, I, I think he's he's quite skilled here with um, with his framing, with his use of the camera. Um, nowhere more evident than in that that high scene. But in general, he's got uh, the all of the club scenes have some real zip to them. Um, he's he's good about uh, about creating some energy around the dancing and and cutting in between close up shots and creating a real sense of movement in the frame. Uh, I, I think his uh, his direction of Let's let's up a little bit in the the middle portion. Mm-hmm. But I mean, it's just, there's just not much as much it, there, you right? Know, it's, but, it, it's, but once the the heist kicks going. off, and then also I think the hospital sequence when he's stuck in the room and just waiting to find out if oh, somebody's going to kill him. Paranoia that that is ratcheted up in that that scene. Uh, there's so much so much that happens in the last 20 minutes of this movie. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, I have. I every time I watch, I mean, admittedly, it's only twice, but each time I watch this, my my feeling is always, I wish the flashback was ten minutes long, and then we just got back to, or even cut. You know, I think a lot of that information would come through fine in dialogue, and we'd get it, and then we could combine in more of the genre elements that really pop and seem honestly seem to be where C Max interest lies uh, just uh, just in terms of how he again the first 15 minutes and the last 30 minutes are he is just bringing some real energy to the directing that just isn't there as much when we're just following steve when, come back home to live with his mom when he, when he needs to execute uh, a, a set piece he's he's on it um mm-hmm. and and yeah that hospital scene um i'm glad you i'm glad you mentioned that because it, it does after after such a big action set piece all of a sudden we have steve is is confined to his bed um we it's very hitchcock we get, um it's it's very hitchcock and we get this uh, all what's what's specifically very hitchcock is that that wonderful shot where where we, he his bed moves up um where the nurse lifts his bed and and he catches sight the mirror comes into frame and all of a sudden we see that there's a man waiting for him in the hall maybe and waiting for him that's the problem he's maybe. he could be waiting for him he could be waiting for something else and then that's where right? the paranoia sets in he's and and no I, and i think it's also an interesting i think what's great about that sequence is that it has done such a good job setting stuff up so that we understand why he's nervous like what the stakes are and what the intention is and why we should be nervous for him because he can't tell anybody right he nobody can know that he was in on the crime i mean i guess i, I guess when his buddy the detective comes in it, it, they kind of cover it then too so i guess they do spell it out um but I think even if they didn't have that scene with the detective buddy to spell it out, you'd still 100% get, like, the newspaper said where he is in the hospital that he's stuck in. He just betrayed these very dangerous criminals. And are they going to send somebody to kill him? He doesn't know. We don't know. Is that what that guy's there for? Is that what that nurse is there for? Who knows? Yeah. Uh, I mean, I could... I, I think he lives in that scene just long enough, but... But but I mm-hmm. would have I I I could have kept on with the pace that he was setting at the end for yes. for a while longer. It was it, it was great. Again, like if this was if this was the whole movie, this would be just fantastic. If if it was living it with this kind of energy and propulsiveness and and it would be so good. So uh, so so not for the first time tonight. We have a story that um, that I think uh, unlike. A, a lot of the noirs that we have uh, have looked at or will be looking at. Um, this is a deceptively very simple story, um, and, and and the narrative almost overcomplicates it. Um, mm. uh, it's uh, it, it's it's something that we we don't need necessarily all of that time in the in the flashback that we that we get. We could um, 
we have a, a pretty simple story of um, of of lust and uh, and ultimately bad decisions stemming from it and and betrayal. Uh, it's it's still got more going on plot wise than I think our, our next entry does, uh, which is even simpler in, mm-hmm. in its basic take. But yeah, I mean, so that kind of reminds me of there's a piece of screenwriting advice I heard that was, you know, you've got three three angles, right? You got like you got character, the world, and the story, and you should try to just make one of those complicated and keep the other two simple because that's allows the audience to focus on that one thing and be like, okay, this is the thing that we're really, you know, digging into. And so I think what it's going for, I mean, I think it's kind of like, it wants to be complicated characters, but the characters aren't that complicated. So then it's also kind of complicating the story a little bit, but just by moving the pieces around. But like you said, if it was, if it was just sequential, it wouldn't be that complicated. And then I think the issue with the story would be clear, which is that, the plot doesn't kick in until an hour into the story. If the story was sequential, that it's like, he's just, you know, if, if it had been sequential and like a real good noir, he would reconnect with his ex-wife and then his ex-wife would start pushing him towards doing this robbery 30 minutes into the movie. And you'd be like, okay, and now we're in business, but that's not what happens. He just kind of like ass backwards winds up, pitching a heist to a gangster because he's like i'm actually sleeping with my ex-wife that you're married to and i don't want you to shoot me so this is my cover story and then i'm just going to commit to it and actually do this heist and it's such a (laughs) and again it's 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 uh you know part of the tragedy i think is is just how stupid he is being about the whole situation you're just like you had so many, you had so many off ramps and so many warning signs, and you just kept doing it. And so, yeah. And then poor, what's his name? His his buddy on the the thing pays pays the price. He he's even he's really telegraphed as as being set apart. I uh, like this is um, this is still pretty early in the the noir chronology, but he's purposefully set apart from from virtually everyone else by not wearing suits. Mm. by um by by being more dressed down and uh and, and that's something that most most other noirs that you're seeing from this period it, uh, it's everyone everyone dressed in you know standard standard suits of the day but uh but there's something about the i think it just suits his his frame his figure uh and uh and it suits the character they're going for here he is meant to not the attire is going hand in hand with intelligence here but but they do hit over and over again that that uh that steve is just not as sharp not thinking as clearly um i I don't know i feel like it's very conscious what they're doing with his attire too sure but i think also like you said just sets him apart and that he is a criminal by chance rather than what do you think of uh yvonne de carla i think that she's serviceable um i i don't think she's not she's not joining the the pantheon of of great noir dames uh i, I wouldn't say but i i don't think she takes away necessarily either yeah she's fine that's my, my thing too is that she's serviceable but again so much of that middle section is supposed to be about that heat and him being irresistibly drawn towards it and for me it's all being sold by lancaster and not not by her and and i think part of it too is the script right that that she is not driving the story in a lot of classic femme fatales would be driving the story where they've got an angle from the start i mean she also is just kind of like i don't know i like you but i like this new gangster and he's got money and you don't so i guess if you get some money we can but there isn't that feeling of like hello steve if you rob a bank for me maybe we'll be together yeah i think i I think that that piece is missing to really sell why he is um why he's so over the moon for uh, I thought Dan Daria did did a, a, a pretty solid job as uh, as Slim though. I thought I thought it brought a nice little edge to it. And yeah, he's always uh, you know anytime he turns up, I yeah. think is you're going to get some solid work. Do you have anything else you want to want to? <laughs> Just that I'm always confused because Edward G. Robinson's character in Scarlet Street is named Chris Cross. Yes. So I always have to stop and be like, is he in this movie? Is that what this movie's about? No, this is the Burt Lancaster movie. No, when you first proposed 
uh, crisscross to me. I my, uh, for for this pairing, my head immediately went to Scarlet Street, which is a great movie, and uh, and I look forward to us covering. Yeah, that no no shade on either film. It's just always that confusing moment of like, is crisscross in the film crisscross? No, he's not. <laughs> nope, and that predates crisscross. Chris crisscross, the character predates crisscross the movie. There's also, a, I think, a crossfire somewhere. Yes, there is a crossfire, <laughs> which is also very good. I quite enjoy crossfire. Uh, well, we're we jumping have gone ahead. very far afield. Far well, we're we're going to jump farther ahead, um, all the way up to 2021, uh, to just last year, and we're going to look at uh, at Guy Ritchie's Wrath of Man. Ladies and gentlemen, we have a new edition. H. Portico Security specialized in cash trucks across LA. Do you have any idea how dangerous this job can be? Some idea, yeah. We ain't the predators, we're the prey. You ready? Ready. This is your temporary sign off. Why was it full of putting pistols in a machine gun fight? Do you have a problem? I don't know. Do I? It's a 10 grand drop. You should have been back five minutes ago. They're serious. Leave this to me. Get in the truck next time. Sorry, pal. Wrath of Man was released in 2021. It was directed by Guy Ritchie and stars Jason Statham, Holt McKelleny, Scott Eastwood, Josh Hartnett, Jeffrey Donovan, among others. Uh, it's a good cast. It is a, it's a good cast. Uh, Eddie Marson. I always like Eddie Marson. Uh, mm -hmm. shows, shows up. And, uh, it's very funny seeing him in this role, too. It felt like Guy Ritchie... Just being like, hey, buddy, you want to show up for this this part? Because there's not like there's not a million LA actors who could play that part well. And he's like, I'm going to bring in a British guy to do this like two day part. Yeah, I feel like um, I, I want to say that M Michael Mann did something similar with him in Miami Vice. That um, I was like, why is Eddie Marston in this movie? Yeah, I have not uh, seen Miami but Vice. I'm never mad to see Eddie Marston. I I've... 20 years. Speaking of movies, I'm excited to revisit. And um, I like I I kind of liked it. Um, it's been. It's been quite a while, but I mean, I was definitely of the majority it. opinion at the time that did not get on its wavelength. But I've also, with the reappraisal, I'm excited to revisit and and also just my own growth and development as a as a movie lover. I'm excited to to revisit and be like, okay, let me see if I can get it on on man's wavelength here. And uh, and just to tie it back to to Richie, I do think that I think that Michael Mann is certainly a a pretty heavy influence on Guy Ritchie. Um, I, I I feel like yeah, the, but there's... like the meathead version of Michael Mann, right. right? Like Michael Mann is like true going for that warrior poet thing, and Guy Ritchie is like man, this... samurai swords are pretty cool, am I right? But this this is a different, um, a, a little bit different of a beat for for Ritchie. Um, he he definitely drops. Uh, a lot of the quippiness here. Mm -hmm. It is. It is. I think his least quippy movie. Um, oh, it is and, just a punch to the face of a movie. Yeah. Um, so, so Jason Statham stars as Hill or H, as he gets nicknamed, um, who initially appears as the newest employee of an armored truck service. After he dispels an armored robbery with ruthless efficiency, he becomes the hero of the depot. Uh, but it also prompts larger questions into his background. Of course, H has an extensive criminal past, but he's here because an armored truck heist gone wrong had ended with uh, the death of his son, Dougie. H is out for revenge. And when the crew of thieves decides it's time for the big score, which would be the knockoff of the depot, H will get his chance to avenge poor Dougie. There's, uh, speaking of crisscross, there's a lot of crisscrossing in this movie. Sure is. And any prior experience with this? Did you see this last year when it came out, Fred? No, I, I, I had not seen it. I'd heard solid things about it. Like, not great, but people were kind of like, okay, Gary Ritchie kind of turned one in. I, I just why I did watch the gentleman uh, when that how, how was the gentleman streaming ah uh, not my favorite movie I don't know again I have not 
watched early Guy Ritchie in a long time, but I do remember quite enjoying those. Movies. I watched I watched his Aladdin, I think last year. But uh, that's right, I forgot he directed he did, he that. He did Aladdin. <laughs> it's such an interesting gun for hire career. Like you know, whatever you might think of his early movies, they were of a specific point of view and style and all that. And then the transition to you know Aladdin and the Camel, King Arthur one that he did. And I did not watch that. Um, I, I didn't watch it either. But yeah, so he his his middle career I have not kept up with. But then his last couple of crime movies I, I picked back up. So the gentleman was, I don't know, it was a little uneven. It's another one where he's just like bouncing around and doing a bunch of stuff. But I'd heard solid things about this. And I'm always down for just like an L.A. crime, like meat and potatoes crime movie. So I was like, let's give it a spin now that it's on streaming. Jason Statham is the meat. Uh, he, is. <laughs> he is the meat. He is the meat. He. Um. I. I have not. I'm not extensively well well versed in Jason Statham movies. Uh. To to be perfectly honest, but to me here he is. Uh. As I as I always picture him, he is not so much a character as he is just a weapon. A, uh. In in human form, he. He is a um, he is an instrument of of wrath of vengeance um, and and he will survive improbable odds and he will execute his um, his vengeance with with terrifying efficiency. He'll take some hits, but um, yeah, and I think that plays to his strengths, right? And it, it does. No, I. I... All, overall would agree with the assessments that I was getting that this is like a solid movie. I was entertained. I didn't regret watching it. It There's not a lot extra that's on its mind, but it sets out to do some things and it does those things. I think what is hardest for me, you've got with this movie is that it, it is such a deceptively simple story. Mm-hmm. This is truly about, uh, about Jason Statham getting revenge on Scott Eastwood. Uh, well, really all of, all of them, but specifically Scott specifically Eastwood. Scott Eastwood, yeah. And, um, and, and in doing so, the, uh, Richie populates this movie with a bunch of, a bunch of recognizable faces. Um, Holt McCallany, who, who we just saw uh, a few episodes ago in Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, uh, mm-hmm. in a, a smaller, a smaller role there than, than here. Um, shows up and he and he's quite good and he's set up to be uh, to to play quite a pivotal role and then he's just kind of dispatched with without without getting any I don't know I felt I felt like I was I was cheated Wait, here out of a, here um, mm-hmm. um, I felt I was cheated out of a better a better um, final moment for him yeah I mean because at a certain point you know the economy of characters you're like well. It's gotta be. It's gotta be Holt McCallany, right? Maybe it's uh, Josh Hartnett, but it's probably Holt McCallany. That's that's the inside man, because right? they just lean so hard into that one guy who's on desk duty. They're like he's he's a you know. There's something bad there, and you're like, okay, you're telling me so hard that this is the guy who's the one feeding the information. It's probably not him. So it's it's um, which is not a problem, right? I mean, I don't think there's anything wrong with the movie foreshadowing what's what's going on here no i know i don't think that's a, a problem i think that there's some missed opportunities in playing with sure. with tension um on on who's the inside man but this this movie's not much like crisscross this movie isn't really concerned with the mechanics of of pulling off a heist or of 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 pulling a a team together for it. None, none of that. Like those elements are are there, but the movie, the movie is a revenge movie. That's that's what's on its mind. Well, it's also it's like turducken of movies too, right? I mean, that's the thing that complicates it. Is the you know you've got the armored car heist part of it, which if nothing else, give this movie credit. It gives you several armored car heists. Sure uh, does. Which, which is also very funny to me because one thing we didn't talk about with uh, crisscross is that. Everybody's like, you can't rob an armored car. It just can't be done. And I'm like, there's four, five different armored car robbery movies from the 1940s and 50s alone. And then you go and watch Wrath of Man, and they're like, we're going to rob an armored car every 10 minutes. You're like, okay, I guess it's a lot easier than, than people think it is. 
and 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 it can't resist to to go how how big can you go you rob the depot <laughs> you, you, well it's, you know it's the classic uh, escalating stakes and yeah if i rob one armored car when you could rob all armored cars on black friday uh but yes yeah, it's, it's just this like you've got the armored car narrative then you've got the soul drawn out reveal of the Jason Statham revenge narrative, which for me had just enough like texture and flavor, specific texture and flavor to it that I was like, okay, like you could probably do this a little bit faster, but also there's some interesting stuff here. So I'll, I'm willing to go along for this ride. Finally, at the back end, you get this whole other essentially movie about a bunch of army vets who go, we're not getting the money we deserve. Let's start robbing places and start pulling off heists. And then you finally get the big shootout, which is another, I don't know, like 20, 30 minutes of, of all these characters just getting killed. It, no, it, uh, it does. It feels like all of these characters are, are, are brought in and, uh, and it ultimately they don't matter because it just comes down to Jason Statham's going to murder Scott Eastwood. And, and that's what, that's what we're, we're in for. And, and it's, it's a pleasurable ride getting there. Yes. Uh, and no, I think, there is something interestingly nihilistic about the movie. Like, I don't know it goes so far as to say that they don't matter to the degree that they could have been removed. I think that they... No, I think he, get, I think he gives us just enough, just yeah. enough of them to wish that they actually had a real character arc to them. Right. And, and that's the interesting thing, right? Is that, that you do start to feel like, oh, this is like a kind of... And, and again, he brings in such great actors that you're like... I enjoy spending time with this this character just because somebody's playing the part so it'd be cool to see what but and then it's just like no i mean even outside I, of I what will, you named Je jeffrey donovan Je i'm a, jeffrey I'm a big burn notice fan from back in the day so i'm always excited to see him turn up jeffrey donovan is also one of the best parts of season two of fargo and oh uh, sure yeah he was and, great fargo season and two he he is such a wonderful character in that so i want him i want to give him any opportunity he has to shine uh, and then the lady armored car, the one female or characters, or yes. one of two female characters, uh, Neo Algar, I actually know from uh, the movie Censor, which is this horror, UK horror movie that came out that, uh, I'm sorry, she's an Irish actress, but the, she was in a UK horror movie called Censor that was, I, I enjoyed, and is, she's been working a lot in like the indie scene over there, and so it's cool to see her turn up, even if it, it was in this like very thankless Mm, I'm the late 20s, early 30s something that's going to sleep with the 55-year-old Jason Statham because this is part of the power fantasy of the movie of, like, Jason Statham is unrelenting. He can get any woman and he can kill any man. And you're like, all right. A Andy Garcia gets to show up very minimally and uh, and just to look the other way at every moment he can. Post Malone shows up to get killed. Post, Mal Post Malone gets to be brutally dispatched with during during a heist gone wrong. That's that there's some pleasure in that. Uh, and it's also got uh, I can't think of the actor's name. One of the one of the other soldiers is from The Boys and he's really enjoyable on The Boys. And no, it's Oh yeah. Uh, you know, uh Laz Alonso is that, that, that his name? You're right. Yeah. Laz Alonso, well done. So yeah, no, it's just like so I think there is sort of a narrative purpose. It feels like if the movie had gone like a half step further there would have been something really interesting to say about the futility of vengeance because all these people die and for what, but we don't quite get there, but it, I don't know. It's still, it's still one, pretty enjoyable. Um, honestly, in the, the comparison that I'm making in my head that, that it, that it fares well against uh, uh, from, from a few years ago was Den of Thieves, which um which was was too bloated and and was was trying to do was also was also quite bleak but was trying to play around with story and it and it was honestly just too long it was like if you had tacked another half hour onto this movie that's what you'd you'd have but this one get, gets in gets out i don't know to me dead of thieves and this were kind of on a similar like meathead update on height on heat right like uh, yes both were enjoyable in similar ways for me uh it just sort of very visceral pleasures of, of watching watching men's with men with guns pull off robberies and kill each other and like yeah you know that tickles the reptile part of my brain uh well it definitely delivers on everything it promises with all of those title cards 
dropping in. I, I feel like they only further ground it in in darkness because it is an unrelenting tone of just. Uh, I mean, it's verging on operatic, right, and, and baroque in terms of what it's doing, and also like some of the costuming that's going on, and it, it doesn't really give much in the way of uh, of letting letting you, the viewer breathe letting you savor a moment of humor or or joy anything it just it just kind of keeps on going and i guess once you you know get whatever 40 40 minutes or so in and you and you see dougie getting getting gunned down in the street then you know you're in you're in for a movie about uh avenging your your child's murder and well how how light can you get after that Right. And it even to the bit where they track down the dead end that's like the child pornography ring that we just drop into for a scene. That to yeah. me felt very like we 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 stumbled it to like a Nicholas Wedding Reffin movie for a second, or like into um Tool to Die Young. As somebody who just loved those, I'm like, okay, like Guy Ritchie doing his spin on that, sure. But yeah, no, it is it is just a from start to finish bleak movie. And like you said, especially by the time you get to the end where you're like, I like these actors. These characters have just enough of definition to suggest that they're going someplace. So they're going to have some kind of like redemptive moment or hero moment, especially for some of the, the guards. And then they all just get fucking killed. <laughs> you're just like, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and, and of course the Jason Statham for the, the second time is laying there on the ground, looking like he's almost a corpse. And, and because you, you cannot keep that man down, he, he will show up again in your apartment and, and yeah. Uh, what if Statham died at the end, what would you think about this movie? I don't know that it would alter it that, that much because, um, because unlike Steve in, uh, unlike Burt Lancaster and Criss Cross, uh, Statham is not a character to me. Sure. He's he's a, he's not fleshed out. He's not a man who's complicated. He's just a man with a singular he is, mission. He is wrath. He is personified. Wrath. That's fair. Uh, let me let me addendum that he died at the end and at multiple points throughout. His friends who are in on what's going on keep saying, "You should stop. This is insane." Like, I wanted to help you uh, find who killed your son, but you've adapted a new identity. You're living out of a hotel. You lost your wife. Like, you know, if there's some more fleshed out character decisions to his story, and then, you know, they'll put a little bit more into the doomed tragedy of it all. Would that, I don't know. I feel like that would give, just, again, just that little extra, like, thematic juice to get it across the, to bump it to the next level. Yeah, I think if they, um, if they want... If the movie was interested in making Jason Statham a, a well-rounded character, but that, like that's not his thing. That's not. That's. I don't know. I feel like I can't think of it now, but I feel like I must have seen Statham. I, I, I'm not expecting that from him. Exactly. Uh, I, I guess my my enjoyment of it's not necessarily hinging on that. That's fair, I, and you're right. That is not the thing that the movie's interested in, and there's not much point in. in... I mean, if it wanted if it wanted to be bleaker, it could have. Scott Eastwood win. That's true. Speaking of, one of my favorite uses of Scott Eastwood that I've seen, like he, I I feel like I usually see him in these Boy Scout soldier roles, but here they let him like have some fun and just be kind of slinky and cruel. And I'm like, yeah, this is a good use of Scott Eastwood. Play against your dad's type a bit. The, um, I I think that's a, I think it, you're right. Um, and he's certainly the actor, aside from Statham, that gets the the most chance to um, to to. Re- I mean, he has the he has the most of an arc of anyone. I don't know. I think Josh. Hart- I think Josh Hartnett also has a bit of a an arc. I think he also has some fun stuff that he has. It was also good use of Josh Hartnett, who's having a little bit of a comeback. He had that HBO series last year about oh yeah racism that he just he just kept personifying like white colonialism. So he's having a little bit of a moment, which is good. I always like Josh Hartnett. So he's a, uh, he's a, he's a likable guy. All right, should we finish talking about these movies? <laughs> yeah, let's let's bring it home. What else is we're as we're bringing them together? Um, we know, I mean, these are these are heist movies, but in in a sense, they're not they're not the same. It's not like we're talking about Rafifi or Ocean's Eleven. These are um, the these are not concerned with the mechanics of the heist in the same way, but that pushes them closer to, I think, 
the noir sensibility that we're we're dialing in on. For sure, like we said with crisscross, you know, there's there isn't that emphasis on the pleasure of people who are very good at their jobs being very good at their jobs, which is one of the things that cinema is great at, sort of delivering that that feeling of you know sympathetic like uh, power fantasy. And I think the Wrath of Man does have a little bit more because the conventions of the genre have been set at this point as opposed to in 1949 when it comes to the heist like more subgenre or whatever we're calling it the heist movie there is a little bit of that like there's the i mean the overall timeline shenanigans plays into that a little bit where you know you start you start the mission and then you reveal but actually we accounted for this and we go back and reveal that. And then we, and then also the soldiers planning it out. And so we do get to see their little miniatures moving around, but it's just done concurrently with the armed robbery depot. So I think there's like nods to where the tropes are now, but I think also ultimately you're right that these aren't really heist movies, they're robbery movies. And I think that that's an important distinction that like the heist movie is about the heist and is about the the art of the heist and that the robbery movie is about the brute force robbing of something which i think like a robbery movie implies the violence which is what was in this as opposed to you know the the heist which is like elegant and almost verging on a con that's such a great distinction to draw there's an elegance it's a it's a carefully mapped out plan uh that you that you delight in watching each little moving part take place whereas this is a movie that that recognizes that oh you can just plow through the police cars it's the SWAT teams you have to be worried about uh but this is this is a movie about running big cars into into bigger cars and and breaking down a depot and and lots and lots of guns (laughs) and to that end i think both wrath of man and crisscross the thing that works best in both of those is is the actual robbery, right? I think that the action part of these movies, when the crime is actually committed, is a highlight for both. And I think Richie tones down his dialish twirls and quirks enough to like really just kind of deliver on I, I thought it like a pretty solid set piece, especially because it keeps subverting your expectations of this is the moment that this character that I've come to like is gonna have their hero moment and like Statham's gonna kinda of like rally them. And this is part of Statham's redemptive arc is that he's gonna be like, you know, I actually come to like these guys and I'm like, but no, they all just keep getting killed. <laughs> You're like, geez. One after another after another. It was a it, it was a good pairing though. Um so so nicely thought out um well, so i guess the other watch thing watch that we back to back i would like to talk in conjunction with each other is the the timeline mishmashing because i think that we talked about a little bit separately with both already is, is just that doing that timeline thing allows them to jolt the beginning with some pizzazz but it felt like there were pros and cons in the execution for both of these in the decision to do things out of order and for both of these i'm a little bit like what would it have looked like if we had done this straight through chronologically and would that have, you know, where would that have landed? Back to Tarantino, um, who to me understands that the, the use of the flashback better than almost any other director out there and that there can be real purpose to when you deploy it and to how long you live in it. Uh, whereas, whereas here it does feel like a, a way to start things out with, uh, with a bang and then, and then gradually reveal your your backstory to make people wonder why Jason Statham is um, is such a, a mechanical killer and is able to to take out Post Malone so efficiently. Um, but uh, but but is there is there any point to holding that back except to to let us live for a little while with wondering what he's really up to. Right. It's a little, it's a little mystery boxy here. And I think with crisscross it's a little bit more like we promised a crime movie, but the crime doesn't happen until the third act. So we got to give him a little something at the start. It's the same way that like horror movies have a kill in the first 10 minutes that is a completely unrelated character, just so that like it came for some, especially for slashers, right? I guess I'm talking about specifically slashers. And it's like, you came for some kills. So we're going to give you a kill. And then we're going to get to know the characters and do all that setup stuff. And then we'll start killing people again. But at least we gave you a little juice to keep you keep you occupied. All right. Anything else in your mind with uh, with these two, Fred? 
No, I mean, I think these are both just each a solid example of their time of the robbery movie. And I'm excited for when we do get to our, our robbery season, because uh, there's just a lot of fun movies to cover. And, and this is just a little taste of what's to come. Uh, it is time, as always, for What's in the Box. In honor, Kiss Me Deadly, what's something you watched recently that's so good it deserves to be glowing in that suitcase? This weekend, I watched Fire Island. And as a lover of rom-coms, it really hit the spot. Uh, and I think also the interesting thing about it is that it's directed by Andrew Ahn, who's a really sharp indie director who's been on the rise for a little while now his last movie was this movie called drive this little movie called driveways that i really loved and and it is a feather light indie drama about a mother and son moving in next door next to an old grump and the the cute 10 year old and the grump make a connection and like learn learn from each other and and it's just it's it's just done very very well very lightly and it's uh brian dennehy plays the next door neighbor and it was his final performance before he passed away and there was even a little a little bit of a talk about maybe getting an oscar nomination for it so uh, and he this is uh so adrian like i said it, his whole career is that spa night um it is it, just this sort of very light touch so he's great and but it's really interesting watching his aesthetics get applied to fire island which has a script that is a real throwback big studio 90s rom-com energy where there's like there's jokes and big emotions and earnestness and friends falling apart and getting back together and and part of it is also because it's a pride prejudice reimagining so it's also just sort of drawing on the urtext of the rom-com but it, it it leans into those beats unabashedly in a way that we just don't see that much anymore and also is not usually what you get out of a dramedy even like a indie rom-com dramedy i guess a rom dramedy uh you know so it's, it's just really interesting tension between these very quiet moments that it feels like they come from Andrew on and then these really fun big bright colors that that come from booster script and then it's also just full of a lot of fun actors giving great performances and it's just very winning you, you just you it's ultimately what you want from a rom-com is that you're rooting for the couple and you're really rooting for the couple here so highly recommend oh i have um i've been hearing wonderful things and i have not seen it yet and this only makes me want to remedy that quickly what about you uh well um i, I don't think i've had anything that i've seen that has has really wowed me but i caught a couple that were were quite good i i, I saw train to busan uh finally which i i enjoyed quite a bit i don't i don't think it quite maintained its momentum in the third act but it was it, it was a well above average zombie film and i just caught crimes of the future which i also um really appreciated as uh as, as something that is totally in in keeping with some of david cronenberg's um, earlier classics. I mean, I don't know that it's it's not quite Crash or the or the Brood for me, but which are my favorites of his. But but I would I would put it up against Dead Ringers or um, or Videodrome or some some of some of his other other ones. Uh, I I I I rather liked it. I think I I would have liked it. I would have liked it to be even a, a little bit longer. Uh, I I just enjoyed having him back in in traditional form um so no, i'm excited though i am also i think i, can't, I think we've talked about Cronenberg before but uh on here but but i am also one of those uh well, I, don't know, I enjoyed i've enjoyed the full breadth of his career i probably actually do lean a little bit more towards his rc fartsy later era i think his, his early stuff always had really interesting ideas but i think as a director he really came into his own once he you know in the back half of his career and so i'm excited to see i can't fault that which is why I split the difference say crash right. is well, a so movie. <laughs> because it's like this script was he wrote right after crash and then it just took him 20 years to make it but you know i, I mean i also really enjoyed 
Map to the Stars, I think is one of his, one of my favorites of his. But no, I'm excited to see it. Some of the reviews I've seen have described it as a noir. So is, do you, would you peg it as a noir or a new yeah, noir? It would, be, it, that will... it, it would be certainly appropriate for, for us to cover Great. in here under, under the right topic. <laughs> I look forward to us eventually landing on that one then. Yes, I think I think it it's certainly um more so than more so than most Cronenberg fits fits in with with noir nicely. I mean, probably Naked Lunch it could uh it probably could pair nicely with that one. Existence? I never watched Existence, but I feel like that one I haven't one seen maybe. Existence either actually. Uh that, that is a blind spot on his filmography for me. Uh and and aside from um viewing, I'm also um I'm almost done reading Jade City. Uh, which is is quite good, and it's uh, it's it's kind of part Godfather, part Wuxia, uh, like urban urban fantasy. Um, I am really enjoying it. Uh, it's warring warring clans within a, a very like Hong Kong of the nineteen fifties like city, uh, fighting over uh, jade, which which in this world has uh, additional powers. That grant anyone wearing it. Uh, it's quite good, and uh, and there's, there's more books in the series, but I'm, I'm nearly done with the the first one, and uh, liking it a lot. It's by Fonda Lee. Uh, she's um, she's got a really great command of of tone. Um, it's certainly got some noir elements in it, uh, and I'm very much enjoying it. Thanks, as always, for joining us on this excavation of the darkest, grittiest of genres. You can find us online at CelluloidDirt.com and on Letterboxd under the handle Celluloid Dirt. We'll see you next week when we kick off our very first season. Join us as we explore one of the key archetypes of the noir genre, the private eye. Across several months' worth of episodes, we'll examine the way the character has changed, or not, from Sam Spade and Philip Marlowe to Doc Spinelli and the Dude, plus every Shamus in between. Until then, may your viewings be riddled with scandal and desperation. Good night. Celluloid Dirt is a strange phantom production. Written and produced by Tristan Johnson and Fred Pelzer. Music by Kevin McLeod. His work can be found at incompetech.com. If you like the podcast, tell a friend. <laughs>